Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast ripe for a compelling, clever, behind-the-scenes TV series featuring two impassioned, uncompromising rants per episode. Today we're discussing the films and TV work of Aaron Sorkin in light of the Oscar consideration of his newest film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, committed to continuously rushing about during today's episode as I trade barbed yet underlyingly respectful quips with my co-podcasters while neglecting my personal relationships. I'm Erica Spires, very happily living in a fantasy world full of people who are too smart for their own good. And I'm Brian Hurt, and today I'll be reusing my best one-liners, just like, well, on with the discussion. Well, this was your suggestion, Brian. Why don't you start us off? Well, sure. First of all, we're recording this on Easter, so... Happy Easter to our listeners. It's already long past, but that is our commitment to our craft, that we're doing this on a day (laughs) where your Messiah rose from the dead. So we wanted to do an Oscar show, and we also didn't want to do what we did last time necessarily, which was to rewatch all the shows. And in an effort to tie this to the Oscars, it seemed like a really good time to dive into Aaron Sorkin. And we've talked about him before. And is it fair to say he doesn't have a huge body of work? In my mind, it's smaller than it is in part because some of his items are just giant TV shows. So the West Wing is a thing, but it's also many, many episodes. But I feel like either he doesn't hasn't done a lot or I've just have happened to seen just about everything he's done. You haven't seen the plays? All right. I'm looking at his IMDb to answer this for you. And as a writer, he has 16 credits. As a director, he actually only has three credits. Yeah, it's a new, new director. Molly's Game. The Trial of the Chicago 7, and one that is currently filming, being the Ricardos. So that's rather interesting. As far as writing, though, yes, 16 credits, starting back with A Few Good Men. A Few Good Men. Yes. So I guess I am somewhat right about that. That's not a huge list of things. And I think part of it is just about all of the stuff is his movies certainly are pretty high profile, and maybe with a few exceptions. Should we say what our priors are on this? I think I already let on that I've seen just about everything he's done, with one exception. What about yous? I'm looking through the list just to make sure. Yeah, so Chicago 7, obviously. Molly's Game, Newsroom, all of it. Loved it. Moneyball. I don't know if I ever saw that. Social Network, yes. Never saw Charlie Wilson's War. Never saw Studio 60. West Wing, I never got through it, but I've seen many, many episodes. Oh, yes, a few good men. American president. Mark? I think probably along with most people was not aware of him as an independent entity until West Wing. I had seen a few good men in the American president, didn't realize those were him. Apparently then he kind of punched up other people's scripts. The Rock, Bullworth, Enemy of the State, I see, uncredited. Also, I'd seen Charlie Wilson's War, didn't realize that was him. But sort of until the social network, that was when I became really aware of him as a thing. Moneyball, I think he just co-wrote. That's not when you look at, you know, when I pull it up on Amazon, it doesn't even list him as a the reason you would want to watch Moneyball. I was not into TV enough when West Wing started to be on board with that. And then I think I might have tried at some point and like, it's too late. 
it's too far into it. I don't want to experience this now. So I was pleased to catch Studio 60 on Sunset Strip right when it came out that my wife and I were watching that. And, you know, it has a guy from Friends. It has Bradley Whitford. It's got the trademark Aaron Sorkin style. But then, of course, that went off the air almost immediately. Only had a season and was not terribly well-reviewed. And I was really playing catch-up for this episode. I had not had any interest or HBO at the time. I'm not sure what was going on with the newsroom. So I watched the first few episodes of that. I was aware of Sports Night, but I hadn't watched any of that, really. So I watched a few episodes of that. Watched about half of the first season of The West Wing to prep for this and caught up on more of the films, on Steve Jobs and Molly's Game, in addition to Trial of the Chicago 7. And Malice at Brian's recommendation, which I might have seen before. But again, I didn't remember, you know, didn't associate. One would not associate that with Aaron Sorkin's current style. That is a that is a bananas film. (laughs) Totally. And it occurred to me in prepping for this that even though I don't love his work uniformly, I am a total fanboy. The fact that I have totally followed this guy's career and was familiar with it and have seen most of these things more than once, including I've been through the West Wing more than one time and sticking through to the end of all these series that inevitably don't end very well. There is something about his style that is a little bit like eating Krispy Kreme donuts. You don't feel good about it afterwards, but at the time, man, does it it just goes down smooth and I just really enjoy consuming it in the moment. Today's sponsor, Krispy Kreme. Can we please Krispy Kreme? Now, one thing I'll say, and this is a humble brag enough about, right, we all do, of what we consume while we're exercising. One thing I'll say about Aaron Sorkin is there's constant dialogue. And if you just need input into your brain to keep yourself going while you're just grinding through the meters, it's really good for that. Mm-hmm. And the I think of the social network as maybe the one that's most densely packed just with dialogue, kind of ongoing, coming at you really, really fast. And, and maybe that's not the best example, but it's one that was famous for someone said to him, it couldn't be done in two hours. And he said, no, absolutely, it can. And there was a table read where he said, everyone talk fast. And they all got through it in two hours. And that was the proof that it could be done. It's almost reminiscent of the uh, Cary Grant movies of the fast talking 1950s, like snappy moving along. Almost doesn't matter what they're saying. It's just super enjoyable to see that happen. I'm a fan of that. Amy Sherman Palladino does that with her shows as well. And I'm sure it's a beast to be an actor on any of these kinds of shows when you have to memorize that kind of dialogue. But as a viewer, I love it because I feel like, unlike many TV shows, you don't get ahead of the actors or of the plot line as quickly as you can in many other TV shows. I like to be able to revisit these episodes. And in fact, I know, I'm sure you all know, many people who watch The West Wing over and over and over, and you either hear something anew or you hear something brand new that you just missed the last time because it's hard to keep up all the time. And did they stop at the end of season four when he left with West Wing? See, that's why I quit watching. I didn't realize that was a thing. Because I knew I was I was approaching it, and I was like, I uh, this is a good time to jump off. There's still some good ones, though, I think, right? There are. Any TV show, even there's a one or multiple writers credited for a given script, but there's a writer's room, and they all have a style that they develop together, and they all work on each other's scripts. So even though he's credited as the writer for, I don't know how many of the first several seasons, one would think that there would be capable people to keep going in that style, even if it wasn't exactly the same. That'd be my guess. I think also, Brian, by saying that he has a small body of work, as maybe you've alluded to, 
isn't really fair because you're talking about an hour long TV show or whatever, 45 minutes a week. And however many episodes there are, 22 episodes a season or 14 episodes a season. It's like seven movies. Oh, I know. It's a crazy statement that I was walking back even as I was saying it. (laughs) But you're right. I think because his name is out there so much, partially because of television, you would think it'd be more titles. And it's not. It's just a lot of episodes. Coming at this fairly fresh, my initial assessment is going to be controversial. Movies good, TV bad. How about that? I like him better in a self-contained dose. Molly's Game, which I just watched, I thought was brilliant. Really liked the social network. A little iffy about Steve Jobs, but I see the point. Whereas even just seeing like the first few episodes of these three different series, I don't know. I feel like there's something that I don't want to spend this much time (laughs) with these characters. Or it's so heavy handed in the idealism. And I feel emotionally manipulated in ways that I don't like. Yes, that is controversial. The soap opera aspect where the characters are surely going to fall in love and kind of stuff. Mostly on sports night, just my initial Oh no, it's not just. I disagree. I actually think he's better with television because I like spending time with those characters. I like the character development of them. I like the manipulation, Mark, (laughs) I guess. We're being manipulated with everything we enjoy. It's just that Mark didn't enjoy this particular manipulation. So what specifically about Aaron Sorkin's was rubbing you the wrong way? So it might be that a lot of the things that I'm with this fairly fresh assessment are not his fault, that he was not the director on any of these things. And so, for instance, the musical cues on the West Wing in the first half of the first season bug me. But mostly it's something I I can very much chalk up to Aaron Sorkin is you're supposed to be when there's a lot of someone giving a big rousing speech. And this is the thing that is supposed to be calling us to our higher ideals. And maybe it's just seeing a bunch of it in a row (laughs) Mm -hmm. makes me just like, oh, I got another one of these that I wasn't expecting it on sports night, for instance, which I just this morning watched three episodes of. But in episode two or three, it's Robert Guillaume as the manager giving this strong speech to the new guy about how you need to trust us and stand up for yourself. And it's not worth going into the plot, but it's very preachy. Let's just say that. Whereas the social network was not preachy. Like it's kind of an antihero. It's a complex character that I think showing him how he did not achieve his goal of overcoming loneliness by creating this (laughs) multi-billion dollar Social network, really like that. Really like the arc of Molly's game, even though it is this character, despite all she's done, is so virtuous. You just, it's crazy virtuous, which there's something a little repellent about. I guess I'd heard something about the West Wing. It's hard for these characters to have character growth when they're also perfect to begin with. They're not, though. They're super flawed. There are a lot of television shows where people do bad things and we watch that and we watch bad choice after bad choice. And those can be also very difficult to watch for me. In something like The West Wing, sure, they're absolutely flawed, but they come through it. And in a way, it's a little less dramatic at times, I think, because and I guess maybe that's what you're talking about with character development. But like, you know, when they're going through something like they're going to figure something out. And that's something that they figure out actually might tell us more about ourselves than somebody who murders people and starts selling drugs accidentally. Right. Because not a lot of us can deal with that. Yeah. Or on purpose. They're not Walter White flawed. Right. We're not getting that where someone who at his core is making choices that 
harm people and continues to do that. They have some deep flaws, but I think in their center, there is this virtuous thing that drives them to do right in the end that can be somewhat tiresome or if not tiresome, at least somewhat predictable. Well, I guess they're more philosophical discussions that they end up having, right? Whether it's internally or with each other. West Wing, for example, anytime you had the Republicans and Democrats duking it out, they were still kind of friendly, you know, for the most part, or they respect, there was a mutual respect for one another. It would be interesting to see how he would approach a West Wing episode now, considering so much of the divide and how different it is, you know, this many years later. And Mark, I wonder, does it ever get to you as being a philosopher and studying philosophy, even for your podcast every single week, you're, you're constantly a student of philosophy. Does that ever annoy you about shows when they try to get too heady? You feel like they're doing it badly or truncating it? That might be my problem. This is definitely too harsh, but someone less charitable than I could characterize this as TV that's supposed to seem smart. You know, we're so used to the bar being so low that, you know, in some ways this is answering a call that should be answered that I've had even people in my family complain. Everybody on every TV show is so dumb, like just on purpose. And you're supposed to laugh at how dumb they are. And actually having something that is better than that, (laughs) characters that you can actually look up to, that you can actually identify with, is great. I don't know that the philosophical discussions I was witnessing here, I didn't feel like they were impinging on my turf, because it's all just to the ends justify the means. Yeah, that's the main one. (laughs) Really. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's the one. Now, are you talking specifically about Chicago 7 with that? Well, let's talk more about Chicago 7. That's the one I probably spent the least time on. I watched it. Right. (laughs) But I kind of watched it early on in this process before I kind of felt like I understood the Aaron Sorkin formula. So I enjoyed it. It was aggravating how the judge (laughs) was just so evil, so despicable. I have a, a funny take on this, a confession of sorts. So I'm usually pretty up on what films are coming out and who made them. And I constantly have IMDb out. I watched the Chicago 7 when I was preparing for voting for SAG after stuff. And I was like, oh, that's one I need to watch. I've, you know, I've heard all this stuff about Sasha Baron Cohen. And I didn't know what the movie was about. I didn't know anything. I went into it. I watched it. And at the end, it said, <laughs> it was directed by Aaron Sorkin. And I looked at Drew and I said, I didn't know it was an Aaron Sorkin film. No wonder I liked it. And he's like, How did you not know it? Did you not catch on to the dialogue? The fact that everybody's a little too smart? I didn't. I don't know what that says about me or if it says anything about this movie. I don't know if anybody else felt that. But to me, it did not scream Sorkin. And after the fact, I could put it together. But I'm not sure if it was the subject matter I just wasn't expecting out of him. He doesn't usually play, unless I'm totally incorrect, play with different time periods. He tends to be pretty contemporary in his work. So some fan I am. Well, one of the articles we read talks about him talking about it being a period piece and how he really tried to play that down. And as much as he could not focus on things being psychedelic 60s and not using Creedence Clearwater Revival because he wanted to make it seem of the moment. So I think that's true to what you just observed about him, Erica. And my take on this movie a little bit is the fact that he also directed it, I think, makes a big difference. Because 
as a writer, he knows or he must know that he's operating with a safety net of sorts, that he can go in certain directions knowing a director is going to make it work or if this is pushing it a little too far, someone else is going to bring it back. Well, he's writing and directing now and he has to, even if he wrote it thinking it's going to work out in one direction, when it comes time to actually film it and put it together and make sure it works, that's when he has to say, well, is it working? Is it not? And I think that there were just some things we saw in this movie that we might not have seen quite the same way if someone else had directed his script. I also think there has been some drift from him on on how his stuff used to really seem versus how it is now. And I think Moneyball, has either of you seen that? I'd hesitate to call anything he does naturalistic, but it just doesn't have the West Wing or even the social network pitter-patter. And I know he can write, people can write in different ways for different purposes. But even though some parts of this movie were just insanely urbane and ridiculous, there were other parts that just felt like it was maybe not necessarily an Aaron Sorkin joint. (laughs) This is why I thought I watched several interviews and actually got through his masterclass. It's pretty short. You can listen on double speed. I happen to have that service. So got through the whole thing. So it was actually felt like quadruple speed? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he actually talks much more slowly than his characters do. Wow. He sort of makes a point of that at the beginning. There's a lot of ums and it's not it's not smooth. But Moneyball's never mentioned once in any of those. That's what makes me think that it was somebody else's thing that he helped punch up or co-wrote or something. There's a reason that that is not his style. So that might just be an outlier, but I could be wrong about that. Was that based on, was it Michael Lewis who wrote that book? Is that maybe having a some sort of fealty to a source material? I don't think he has fealty to source material. <laughs> and part of this is what I was reading about, or what he was saying in an interview here about the, like the Steve Jobs one, where it's officially based on a book, but they had him start doing his own research while the book was still being written. Hmm. So it's really not based on the book. And he chose how he was going to, this is not going to be a biopic. It's not going to go from a little kid being excited about computers to him dying tragically. It's just going to be basically three scenes of dialogue where he sort of comes to terms with various people in his life, you know, backstage before various presentations of new Apple products. I would not understate the effect that he started as a playwright. He says he's more comfortable as a playwright. You know, he wrote A Few Good Men as a play. There was interest in it as a movie, and he insisted it be made as a play first so they could sort of try it out before the movie version was made. That explains to me why... Like, I was surprised at the trial of Chicago 7 that they actually went outside, you know, that they showed that there were flashbacks on location, because that seems so crazy for Sorkin that, no, everything has to be done as if you're presenting it in the round or something, the black box theater. Hmm. Well, A Few Good Men is so stagey. The walk and talk of the West Wing was almost like this proof that we can do something different, right? Because that wouldn't make any sense on a stage. <laughs> and so it was, no, I'm, I cannot be this. And so... I think it was in that same article we read. He talks about how he doesn't have action scenes in his movies. And until the riots of the trial of the Chicago seven, what was an action scene was Tom Cruise getting out of a cab to buy a newspaper in a few good men. And that was his previous action scene. And I thought that was, (laughs) you know, I, I guess you're right. That's, I mean, maybe Moneyball again, not totally withstanding with the baseball scenes, but even then our protagonist doesn't even watch the games, right? He stays in the clubhouse and listens to them on the TV or on the radio. I recommend that movie, by the way. That's one of the ones of his I really like. So my entry into Sorkin or really knowing outside of the social network was actually Newsroom. And I loved the Newsroom. 
And my friends were like, haven't you watched The West Wing? And I was like, no, I'm not like not really into politics. I don't know if it, like, you have to watch The West Wing. It's better. And I mean, just saying like my entryway was the newsroom feels wrong to say to people because a lot of people weren't huge fans of that. I don't know. I never claimed to be the smartest person in the world. So maybe that's why I liked it. It was a little more like dramatized also with the whole, you know, will they, won't they storylines. Part of why I loved about it was that the characters were very interesting to me. Seeing the relationship, seeing how sometimes people would treat each other badly, but nobody was necessarily a villain. These are themes I think we see in so many of his works that he really makes characters who, yes, maybe they're a little too smart, but they're also very relatable in a lot of ways. And The Trial of the Chicago 7, I think, was no exception for that, seeing the kind of frustrations that the group had with each other, seeing that they were all represented by the same lawyer, except for one of them, right? Which is, I guess, why we call it the Chicago 7 instead of Chicago 8. Was anybody else initially confused by that? Counting the people and saying, did I miscount? There are eight of them. It was constantly counting people on the screen saying, I think there's more, but I'm just going to go with it. I thought they just clarified that right up front. They said, that's why they call us the seven. Well, they did, but they didn't do it like when I first started counting (laughs) the people. And I was like, I don't understand. Seeing the infighting within the group, but then how they ultimately have to come together is, I think, a really interesting story, especially seeing people who are technically on the same side of history having a lot of disagreements. And I thought in particular, Eddie Redmayne was fantastic. I've never been a huge Eddie Redmayne fan, but I thought I just loved his performance in this. Well, as our actor in the group, what did you think of Oscar-nominated Sasha Baron Cohen's performance? I thought he was very enjoyable. I enjoyed it overall. I think the accent was not great. Not surprising because it's hard for an American to do a Boston accent. I was looking at where he was from because I wasn't sure when I first started listening to it, not knowing anything about the story beforehand, where he was supposed to be from. And then I looked it up and I was like, I think this guy's supposed to be from like Worcester. I like, don't think anybody I've met is from Worcester. But, you know, like I said, not even most Americans get a New England accent correct. So that's forgivable. I think he is good, though. Like this isn't for me is not an exciting Oscar nominee performance. There's not a lot challenging that he had to do. I'd have to see it again to see like which scene is the Oscar scene. <laughs> like I don't recall any. He just kind of was smarmy, wasn't he? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit confused. What did you think, Brian? I feel like about half of the Oscars that get given out are for rewarding people's careers or for the Hollywood establishment to tell an actor that we accept you. And as much as I enjoyed Kathy Bates in Misery, is that really what she should have gotten the Oscar for? I mean, I'm not going to argue with it. And I'm not going to argue that she's not award-winning caliber actor because she is. But I really feel like Borat would have been a better thing to give him a nod for than this. I agree. For acting. It's almost like they felt like they couldn't do Borat, but they all really liked the film. So they're like, well, we'll get Maria in there somehow. But like, he was in the Chicago 7. Yeah, that's legitimate. Let's do that. Right, there was a year John C. Riley got nominated, and it was because he was in three Oscar-nominated movies. And it was, well, maybe it wasn't because of that, but it seemed like someone said, well, certainly he should be nominated for something. He was in, like, Gangs of New York and Chicago, like, all these things at the same time, and it was pick one. And we also got to remember, like, there weren't a lot of films that are, like, Oscar-caliber-type films that came out this year. So I thought it was an interesting mix that they put together. And I I, I never quite understand it. Like, there are always people who are going to be overlooked. Let's stop for a quick sponsor break. 
If you, like most of us, use one of the big wireless providers, then you are used to getting screwed by the fine print with extra fees from your wireless carrier. And so you might think on hearing that you can get wireless for only $15 a month, there must be a catch. And that's what I thought when I originally switched to Mint Mobile. I switched because they gave me a free account when I started advertising for them on the Partially Examined Life about two years ago. But you know what? My free account ran out and now I pay for the service because I had no complaints. There actually is no catch. It is cheap because they don't have to cover retail stores. They do everything over the internet and all that savings gets passed to you. Mint Mobile uses the largest 5G network in the nation. All their plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data. Switching is very easy. You keep your phone, you keep your phone number, you keep all your contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. So shake things up, unshackle yourself from our corporate overlords. Just try it out. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash pretty. That's mintmobile.com slash pretty. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash pretty. To me, this film was more about the plot and the politics, and there are just too many characters to really sink much into any of them. I guess most, I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the one that we're supposed to, <laughs> has the most sort of character growth through this whole thing. But yet he's playing it like really cool and <laughs> it gets that's not an Oscar worthy perform, you know, as opposed to other things he've done. Um, it just wasn't called for. It was just about the outrage of the ongoing trial and the ridiculousness of gagging people and ignoring the mounting dead and this political vendetta. You know, it was just meant to. I should feel manipulated in the same way that it was the injustice of not letting the one guy's testimony be heard, things like that. It was effective enough for me. Maybe because, again, it wasn't like a weekly TV show that I was binging and overloading on. I think the first thing that I saw, again, the Studio 60 and Sunset Strip that I knew was Sorkin, that opens with a rant. It's Judd Hirsch as sort of the outgoing producer of this TV comedy show and gives the same kind of rant that happens at the beginning of the newsroom and happens, I think, in many other places in Sorkin's work. But this is the first time I saw it, and I thought the whole thing was like, wow, this is an amazing little piece of television. Are we spoiling the end of this movie for anyone who's made it this far? Spoil I mean, I, I know, it now. Spoil it now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because I found the closing scene to be so distasteful. It was really a bummer of a way to end the movie, because like with a lot of Things we've seen from him, we have this moment where we're inspired to be kind of lifted up by someone doing the right thing or civil disobedience or whatever. And it was, right, the Eddie Redmayne character, Tom Hayden, who has been told to give a brief statement in exchange for a light sentencing. And then he uses it to start reading the names as his friend had been writing down the names of every soldier who had died in Vietnam since the start of the trial. And he just starts reading from that notebook. And then like there's this crescendo of music and everyone's standing up. And maybe that happened. Like I have no idea what did and didn't happen. Like I would like to think everything happened, but in reality, any of it could have been made up. But just as the names of dead soldiers are being read, and for this it was just so like meant to be uplifting in a way that I just hated. And it was just this <laughs> disconnect and I thought it was kind of gross. I felt like I was being pulled in too many different directions. Just did not work for me as a closing moment of a of a movie. In theory, I feel like it works. But when you're used to getting a big speech that really uplifts you, it does feel like a bit of a cop-out. 
It's like, guys, guys, for the ending, we're going to read the names of the soldiers so everybody remembers what this is really about. But then the impact is like, it's like bread rising and then just... (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you on that, Brian. I think it was a bit of a letdown as well. If you're already on that side of history, you already know that that's why you're there. And if you're not on that side of history, I don't think that that is something that's going to make you change. See, I did not mind that moment. And I felt like there had been enough other things to distract us since it was established that his friend was writing the names down, that it was actually a surprise, a reminder, a refocusing of attention that I think it dramatically worked okay. Whereas other things with veterans, you know, there's one of these in the first six episodes of West Wing in particular, where one of the characters finds out about a homeless veteran who's died and goes around trying to arrange his funeral, which I just found that whole thing kind of cloying. And it's one of those things that I respect the sentiment in the abstract, but that actually, in the same way you're just saying, Brian, presented to me on screen feels like the filmmakers are using real life deaths to manipulate me in a dramatic way. They totally got where I was coming from there. And I don't know if, if that happened or not. And maybe it did. I doubt it happened exactly that way if it did. Not as dramatic. And I'm no. sure that there was no orchestra in the (laughs) (laughs) did the prosecutor really stand up in solidarity also sick to death of the travesty of this courtroom yeah one of the things in the master class that came up he was talking about how much can you fictionalize and it was sort of you can change details as long as you're doing it in the spirit of what happened you know it, it was kind of what you'd expect but was saying when mark zuckerberg comes back to his room, his dorm room to start typing this blog that becomes the whole thing that expands into Facebook. Then he's mixing himself a a screwdriver. And then they found out while they were doing it that really he only drank beer. But no, it was so much more dramatic to have him like mixing a drink. And that didn't violate the, you know, so that's the kind of detail or we can change the timing on things that it wasn't right before the presentation that the Mac computer wouldn't talk. That is the focus of the first third of the Steve Jobs movie. This happened weeks before and over multiple meetings, but that's okay. What about the construction of the Rooney Mara's character who didn't exist? His girlfriend in the opening scene who there's a bookend with the closing scene where he gives her a friend request. He must think it's okay because he wrote it, but how do we feel about playing fast and loose with something like that? So again, I'm kind of much more sympathetic to him after seeing the masterclass thing. And it's just very important to him. I didn't realize he was quite so formulaic, but he's like very much, you have to set up these stakes and the thing that they're trying to accomplish. And so this was the, like in real life, there really aren't often these exact, these conflicts that you can easily latch onto emotionally. And so having that emotional core of, I'm lonely. This particular person spurned me. And so now I'm going to change the world. Yes, that's probably not true at all, (laughs) but it makes it compelling. So as a thing to hang the rest of the actual things that happened and the interesting machinations of the business world on, like you have to have that emotional core. Yeah, I'm not sure what I think about that being a lie. (laughs) I don't think it's just about that emotional core moment. It's about a theory. And I don't know where this started. It is something I learned along the way. And I will not forget how in theater, and I guess in a lot of writing for theater and probably film, there has to be a reason for everything, right? Or at least that's a theory of some people. There has to be a reason for absolutely everything that you do. And yes, that certainly makes it more interesting. That's something I've learned over the years is if you have some sort of internal motivation, right? And you have a reason to be 
but I was doing a musical several years ago and the guy who was playing opposite me, we were saying something about like why my character came on in that moment or why she said something. And I was like, I don't know. She just did. Like she just walked across the stage or something. And he goes, no, 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 you have to have a reason. And I was like, I don't think you do. I think sometimes people just walk because they need to, you know, walk to whatever. Like it doesn't have to be for a direction. And he's like, no, it's not possible. In theater, you have to have a reason. And this was something he learned and was trying to teach me. And I, I found it very annoying. But he had had a ton of formal theater training. And somewhere along the way, somebody taught him that he took it as truth and was trying to bestow it upon me. Now, I don't think that was necessarily right, but it got me thinking. And, you know, a theatrical representation of something, and when I say theatrical, I don't mean just on stage, is ideally the most interesting two hours of somebody's or a group of people's lives because you are taking everything that you would normally do in a day and calling it down to, and even if it's a boring moment, it's still, it's there for pacing, right? But you're taking the most dramatic, in quotation marks, points of somebody's existence and putting that into a story that you expect people to engage with. So yes, it is probably far less interesting why Zuckerberg made that decision. But from the writer's point of view, he was giving the audience an anchor. That really all seems like a great explanation, Erica. Or his reason could be very interesting, but kind of inscrutable. Or not easy to communicate. Not easy to communicate in five minutes. (laughs) Just unknowable. And so you got to come up with something. I mean, I asked the question, not presupposing an answer. I, I think it's fine to do those things as long as you're not purporting this to be some kind of, this isn't documentary. And even documentaries can present the truth in one way or another. If you walked away from it thinking, oh, well, that's how things went, then you're kind of an idiot because that's not how movies work. And you should know that things get changed for the purposes of telling a story. And Mark, it doesn't surprise me at all that he's formulaic. I mean, there are tools that writers go back to all the time. And if it's the eight point story arc or the whatever, I mean, they work in part because they've worked time and again, and it's how you get invested. And it's how you kind of go on the emotional, somewhat predictable roller coaster of through the three acts of a story or, or whatever it is. So I have no particular beef with that storytelling approach. But it, yeah, it can be annoying. And really predictable at times. There's one quote that I was thinking of, Mark, when you were first talking about this. There's a the quote from Spider-Man 2 that Doc Ock says. Is it about the rubber band? No. No, you tell yours. Did Beethoven sleep the night before he wrote the fifth? Well, yeah, because it took him a long time to fucking write it. He didn't write it in a day. I remember hearing that quote in the theaters and Drew and I both heard it and we're like, are you kidding? Like, why is this even a quote? Like, he was he was trying to sound smart and in doing so sounded like a total idiot. Like a couple days, I assume, to write something like that. Yeah, at least two. What do we think about these characters that seem to capture what that quote was just saying? That what they're doing is so important that inevitably their personal relationships fail or they're ascetic in a way that we just discussed on Partially Examined Life. That they neglect parts of themselves in favor of their greater goal. There was a great tagline from the Steve Jobs movie, which was, can a great man be a good man? That sticks with me. I think he does explore this a lot, right? When you give so much of yourself to a cause, what are you giving up for that? And we'd all love to see that you can have it all, but there's usually a sacrifice that happens. You saw the Steve Jobs movie, Brian? Just once, but yeah. I did not like it nearly as much as The Social Network. And I'm not entirely sure why. And it can't be because the character is more repellent or something. They're sort of equally (laughs) repellent. Well, the Steve Jobs movie seems to be of a class of 
biopics that aren't about someone's whole life, but they're also not about a moment. And as you mentioned, it was three different moments in his life, three different seminal moments, but they also involve his daughter and his relationship with his employees and his relationship to this creation of his Apple. And I think it's a weird middle ground. I don't like that storytelling style. I found the movie a little irritating and I wish it had gone bigger, gone smaller. I thought it was in a middle ground that didn't do much for me. And not to be super picky, but there is something about having someone play a role that they just seem miscast for just by type. I thought Michael Fassbender just didn't work for me as Steve Jobs. And it's He's far too sexy. Not his. Well, That's what, right? Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't care much for it, which is probably why I've only seen it once. It had some great moments. And I think I did maybe get teary at the end, but I didn't fundamentally like, like, I really liked the thing with the Rooney Mara character in Social Network, this connection, the emotional core of this, even though it was true of Steve Jobs relating to his daughter, I just found that repellent. And partly, you know, from what I hear him saying about is this is a part of the character that Aaron Sorkin did not understand either, like how he could possibly treat his daughter this way. And it was only from talking to the daughter extensively that he like was able to write that part and make that the emotional core and gain some understanding. But I still walk away not really getting it. Well, maybe that's a function of the writer not getting it. And maybe he had the wrong point of view character and it should have been the daughter's story. I don't know. What do you think about the moral center that is pushing through? So, Erica, I'll ask you this. So you're a fan of the newsroom. I could see by the first episodes that this was all about, you know, a critique of the shallowness and ratings driven commercial approach of the news and that there is something where truth will transcend partisanship. How did you feel about that whole thing? I think that's why people generally don't like that show so much is because it seems just preachy. That's, I think, why I liked it so much. I was in college when 9-11 happened. And I remember specifically, there was a place we would all go and hang out. There was always a big screen TV on and it was always on Fox News. And I went to a liberal arts college and a very liberal college in a very conservative town. At the time, Fox News, from what I remember, and of course, I was more conservative at the time too, so I know the lens isn't the same. Fox News was more newsy. I remember watching over the years, starting with 9-11, really, and seeing it become more and more politicized towards conservative views rather than actually reporting the news. And part of that, I think, was on account of now 24 hours news networks are a thing. And it's not just watching the news a few times in the day. It's 24 hours of entertainment. So to me, this is a problem that I had noticed during the time in my life when I first started really paying attention to the news, seeing it as a problem. And then this TV show was addressing those things that really bothered me. So I liked the preachiness of it because it felt like somebody was actually saying something that I've been thinking. Let me ask you this, Erica. How do you feel about how the newsroom uses real news to build its show around the way that West Wing used made-up world events? What I'm getting at, I'll talk specifically, when I first watched, I guess, the first couple episodes of the newsroom when it came out, I read this really scathing article about how this alternate reality has this big network breaking the Deepwater Horizon story which in reality, none of them did. And wouldn't it be great if that's really how it came out that this was happening? But what did happen was a small newspaper or TV station, I forget which it was on the Gulf Coast did, 
And this show was sort of this fuck you to these actual courageous news people who came forward with this story when other networks weren't going to cover it. I feel like they are taking this moral high ground, but they're also taking it away from real people who did real things in a way that the West Wing works around it a little bit. 9-11 doesn't happen in quite the same way in the West Wing world, but there is a, a nuclear accident in California that the president responds to quickly in a way that George Bush didn't respond to quickly with 9-11. Anyway, that's a really long setup for your question. But how does that interaction between fiction and reality sit with you on the newsroom? I think overall, I'm more drawn to the overarching premise of the show rather than those parts of the stories. So I know like in season two, for example, they went into this Operation Genoa and they talked about sarin gas being used and how they had run with this story and should they have and all of this. Season two is less interesting to me than season one. I can't remember which season it was when they basically talked about the presidential debates. And it was, you know, talking about like the freaking sideshow that that was around that time. That to me was interesting. I don't know, Brian, I'd have to go back and watch it and see how I feel about it now. At the time, I don't think it registered with me. Should it have? Maybe. It just seems a little different to me than creating a character in Mark Zuckerberg's story. Again, I didn't even less did I think that this fictional news network was the first to cover this event because this is just pure fiction. But when I read that article, it resounded with me as like, yeah, that's a little icky. But in some ways, it's hard to make up big natural disasters in a way that feel authentic because they always seem outlandish. Right. I mean, a nuclear disaster in California kind of felt outlandish in the West Wing. But if they had in an alternate world of ours, for someone to make up a plane going into the World Trade Center would have seemed outlandish, even though they managed to do that in The Lone Gunman or just narrowly avoid it in The Lone Gunman. But I was listening to a podcast yesterday where they were talking about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And something that I've wondered myself is when the MCU is mostly set in our world that we have New York in it, right? We have LA. But then they have a few places that are fictional that are kind of stand-ins for other places. And, you know, I was asking Drew about that. I was like, why is that? Is that a political thing? Like, why would you necessarily do that? And he goes, well, it's going to be really hard to sell your comics in places when if you you make up a name of something that's a stand-in for something else so that you don't actually piss off the people saying like, hey, this evil guy came from this area. Cleveland is all Hydra. <laughs> <laughs> You can do stand-ins and people, like, they're very thinly veiled. I think even if you do news stories that aren't real, you're still commenting on them as though they are the real thing. You're just not, trying not to get in trouble. I would love to write a comic where Madison is the home base of all the villains and talk about them hanging around at the Union and going down by the lake and <laughs> doing all that stuff and maybe blowing the whole place up eventually. <laughs> that would be cool. You don't have to make up a city to do that. You could do that for Madison, but you're not going to want to do that for like an Eastern European country who we've already like said, you guys are you guys are evil for so many years. You know, we want to lessen the amount of xenophobia, demonizing the other. Yeah, that's so pierced through Marvel Comics and all comics and all fiction in the first place. Where are our villains going to come from, if not from some strange other Eastern land. Talking about real issues with real characters, I think it's always a hard thing to do, right? When we had Kevin Allison on here, for example, and he was talking about the stories that he told and how you sometimes have to be careful or people don't want to tell those stories because they don't want to hurt somebody who's still alive. I don't know how you can actually be a writer and write about real things without pissing somebody off. Or you just do. You lean into it and say, that's... I'm going to piss people off, but Sasha I'm going to piss Cohen. people off 
anyway, so I might as well do it my way. For Sorkin, in his masterclass, it was, you will do no harm in terms of fictionalizing. Like, you can tell the awful truths if those things actually happened. Don't make them more awful. Don't make Mark Zuckerberg have been doing coke before he put out his (laughs) blog post. Perhaps a future episode that we can think more about is just fiction that regurgitates historical events and how that relates to just even the experience of watching comedy news or something. You know, there are just different ways that when things happen, we like or don't like to go over them again. Like in my house, we have stopped watching This Is Us entirely because like now they're reliving the pandemic. We really want to do that (laughs) now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like maybe later, but no. Any last words, thoughts? I remember the other possible Oscar topic. Maybe we can get into this more in the after talk. Mank was another one we had thought about. Movies are about movies and Hollywood's fascination with itself and its own industry. So I think that's a comment. Okay, everybody, before we sign off, of all the best picture movies nominated so far that you've seen, where do you put this one? I put it number one of one. I'm going to have to look this up. The nominees are everybody. The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and Trial of the Chicago 7. Several of those I have looked at and thought I should watch this at some point. Good for you. (laughs) I know you've seen a few of these, Erica. Yeah, I haven't seen enough of them still. But I have to say my prediction at the moment is that Minari could take it all. If you had a vote but could only vote for one you've seen, what would you vote for? Like my favorite? You could vote for your favorite or you could vote for what you think should win. Promising Young Woman. All right. I've only seen this and Mank, and I think Mank would win over Trials Chicago 7. All right. I got to get cracking. And Minari is great, by the way. Like, it's very close. I just think that Promising Young Woman ended up making me think about a lot of stuff after it. Minari was beautiful. So I would be very happy if it won. All right. Thank you for listening. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, everybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.